in one sense, risk can be very short term. It can be running out under enemy fire or doing something that seems particularly daredevilish in your personal life, that sort of thing. And those are short term risks that can have high costs. But the longer term risks, I think, are when you undermine what you are trying to do or to be overall. You're listening to A Healthier Future, where we explore big ideas for transforming and improving the future of health, showcasing the most innovative solutions and best practices today. Today, I'm speaking with retired four-star general Stanley McChrystal. One of the world's foremost experts on leadership, General McChrystal is most well-known for his two-year stint as commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan, where he led more than 150,000 troops from 45 allied countries. Now he runs the McChrystal Group, counseling business leaders on how to navigate complex change and build stronger teams. On today's episode, we talk about leading a team during challenging times and how changing our concept of risk could help to revolutionize the healthcare sector. I'm Mark Harrison, and together we're building a healthier future. I'm Mark Harrison, and I'm here today with Stan McChrystal, a highly decorated Retired four-star general, best known for his leadership in counterterrorism and special operations. Stan is a person who I consider to be a friend and a mentor, somebody I admire greatly. So glad to have you with us today, Stan. How are you? It's great to be here with you and absolutely as a friend. So I'm honored. Well, it's, it's a privilege. Stan, as I've gotten to know you a little bit, I've I've enjoyed hearing about your family and about how you were raised. And you know, for somebody who's had such a tremendous leadership career, I think it's hard to separate your upbringing and the values you were raised with from how you show up as a leader. And I was wondering if you might share with some of our listeners a little bit about what it was like growing up in your family, which was a military family. It sure was, Mark. And if you ever saw the movie that they made some years ago with Robert Duvall, the great Santini, where a very braggadocious, outgoing pilot, military pilot, ran his family like a military unit. That was the opposite of my family. I don't think I would have wanted to grow up like that. Absolutely. We had six kids, so there was a certain amount of management involved. I mean, they sort of lined us up to make sure that they had them all. But the reality was, my father's a very quiet man, was a very quiet man. He died a few years ago. And Even though his father had been a soldier and he was a soldier, he and my mother had a different style about us. And so they never sat us down and talked to us about values directly or gave us rules of life. Instead, what they did is they personified them. And I never once saw my father or mother do anything wrong. Now, you step back and say, well, what does that mean? I never saw them take a parking place they shouldn't have taken. I never saw them keep extra change that they might have gotten if a clerk made a mistake. I never saw my father or mother wink and say, well, we, we got one over, we got to the head of the line, or we, we were able to cut around on our taxes. They just didn't. And so quietly by the lives they led, they became an example. And so I found that very powerful to, for the rest of my life. Aren't you lucky, by the way? I think society would be a much healthier place if um, everyone could say that about their folks and about how one lives their values. As you went through your education and career, how did you bring that ethos with you? 
I think all of us travel a journey to figure out what our values are. I remember when I entered West Point, they talked to us about the honor code and they talked to us about other values that they wanted. And some very thoughtful officers said, we are teaching you things that you won't fully internalize until later in life. And I think that's very true of most of us. Like everybody, I went through a period in my life sort of as a, uh, a knucklehead, I'll describe it. You know, I almost got thrown out of West Point for violations of discipline. Never anything like honor violations, right. but I just was, I was more rambunctious than a person ought to be at that age. And <laughs> there were a lot of things that I think in life you figure out, you've been taught the right answer, but it's when it becomes in execution that you really get tested about what, what your values are. I often tell people in my life, I've never accepted a bribe. And they look at me and they go, oh, that's good. I say, well, the truth is I've never been offered a bribe. So I can't pat myself on the back that I haven't done that. But those times when we're tested in life, do we do the things we know we shouldn't do? I remember once when I was a ranger school, a student, that's a very difficult nine-week course that part of the army goes through. And at one point in the course, we were, some of the members of the squad that I was in were angry at another member of the squad, and he was temporarily made the squad leader. And so for a period of time, he told us what to do, and he wasn't a good squad mate. And so he deserved us not to respect him. But at the critical moment, we wouldn't do what he said to do. And we felt sort of morally superior at the time, and we felt that he deserved it. But in retrospect, I'm ashamed of that. Because in that moment, I was not the soldier I should have been. I wasn't the leader I should have been. I wasn't the person I should have been. And whether that guy deserved it or not, the person who really was wrong in the moment was me and, and my comrades. And so I think you go through life and you have some experiences like that. And if you internalize them and pay attention to them, then I think they can be of value. So, you know, I'm really glad to hear you say that you were a knucklehead at one point. And I think a lot of us are really glad that social media didn't exist when we were in our formative years. There's a message in there that we're all capable of both giving and receiving redemption and growing. And when I listened to your last set of comments around self-reflection and ongoing development, I'm struck by the idea that if more people were actually actively working on themselves, we would act, have maybe a more effective set of leaders in our society. And can you talk a little bit about, the, here you are, you've had this storied career. You know, you would never say this, you're an American hero, and yet you're still working on yourself. And I love that. And can you talk a little bit more about it? Well, absolutely. And, and there are two parts to this. There's one very personal and one that's more general. I'll start with very personal. My career ended in 2010 when a magazine article in Rolling Stone came out and basically accused my command team, that's the immediate staff around leader, of being a locker room sort of culture and not respectful. And I didn't think that the depiction in the magazine was accurate or fair, but that doesn't matter. I'm responsible for that. I'm a leader responsible for the kind of news coverage we get. And it created a problem for President Obama. And as a result, I offered my resignation and ended my military career in that moment. 
And so in that particular moment, I got to make a personal decision. And that decision was, what am I going to be going forward? One option was to be an aggrieved, bitter old soldier who goes forward. And I could probably get invited to lunch to tell my story about how I got screwed by the president or something, you know, for quite a while. But the reality was that's a life choice that leaves you stewing in your own bitterness. And so I made the decision not to do that because you can't relitigate the past. I accept responsibility for the way my career ended because I deserve responsibility for it. But you can fail without being a failure. And so interestingly enough, helped by my wife, Annie, we focused forward. And I've never spent any time arguing about it or worrying about it. That's just something that happened. And I moved forward. And I don't know if I'd put it all the way to the term of redemption, but it is the idea that even though things happen, that's not a new standard. If you do something wrong, if you fail, don't lower your standard and say, well, that's my new standard and that's where I'm going to live now. Go right back to where you think you should be or should have been always. And so it's funny in the army now when, when someone leaves the surface service for, for difficult circumstances, they often refer them to me. They go see, go see Stan McChrystal. <laughs> that's kind of a, it's a, a dubious honor, but they say you've rebounded well. And I think I rebounded well because we focused forward. And what I've done is tried to live in a way that the people who believed in me before believe in me still, and they don't feel like that they misplaced their confidence or faith in someone. Now, the second part of your question is, how do I then carry that around with me? People that I know that fail or make a mistake. What if somebody does something that I think is very, very wrong? And do I do I pick their sort of personnel file up and put it in the pile of people I will never deal with again? Do I write them off? And I'll be honest, I think all of us struggle with that. I struggle with that sometimes because there's some people who I think have done things that you don't want to seem to endorse. So I don't want to to hang around them and be friends with them and communicate to them that I think it's okay. At the same time, I do believe in redemption. If you don't believe in redemption, then there, there's almost no looking forward to the future. We, we have to believe that we can do better than we've done in the past or people would stop trying. And so I'm still struggling with that second part. Not to sound too philosophical, but it's the journey, Stan. It's this is a Zen journey. <laughs> There's nothing you can do about the past, right? And you really can't control the future. You can live in the moment, and it's that struggle, it's that next step that is eternally interesting and and actually rewarding. So I'm struck. You know, you always speak about Annie in such a respectful way, and it sure sounds like you ended up with an amazing life partner. Do you think the fact that she came from a military family also has been helpful to the two of you? I think so. I, I know it's probably more personal just attributes, but she never wanted to marry a soldier. She was from a big military family, and she had decided when she was in college that that was not for her. So she didn't want to date someone in the military and she didn't want to marry someone in the military. So she ended up dating me and marrying me. But what I found is. I never had to tell Annie how to be an army wife. I never had to say, you should reach out to young wives and do this. She just had this instinct that I think it was came upon watching her mother, who was an extraordinary lady and an extraordinary army wife. 
And Annie just seemed to sort of gracefully fill a role because in the military, the spouse is very important in helping younger spouses grow into the, the culture and whatnot. And so because she did that, so it seemed effortlessly, I know she worked hard at it, but it seemed that she could do it smoothly. I think it made me much more confident. It made me much sure. And the other thing about Annie is she always reinforced what I should be, not maybe what I was in the moment. It, it, and it's funny, and she still does this. As you get more senior, as you've learned, and you get more well-known, your conduct is noticed all the time. And so even today, she will remind me if I want to get angry or petty, that I can't do that because I'm an example every moment for somebody. And so I think having someone who's honest enough and strong enough to say, hey, you're forgetting yourself here is very helpful. Good com communication only occurs when somebody's on transmit and somebody's on receive. So it works in both directions. And I think it comes back to that idea that she wants you to be everything you can be, but you want it too and, and are willing to receive her thoughts. So let's, you know, we've worked together in the context of healthcare transformation, Stan, and more work to come. And boy, my industry is in terrible need of transformation. Uh, we're too expensive. We're not transparent. We're clunky to use. Our quality is inconsistent across the industry. We've got huge problems with social and racial inequities, rural versus urban divides. I mean, all kinds of problems. And these are soluble problems, but, but they're not easy. And there's a lot of personal and professional risk involved. If I'm remembering correctly, you've said that you chose a soldier's life in part because you like taking risk. And I wonder if you could talk, and I know you've written recently about the idea of risk. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about risk and leadership and how the two uh, play together. And maybe if you could give me a, some advice about choosing other leaders who are willing to take some risks in pursuit of a greater purpose. I'd, I'd really appreciate it. No, I, absolutely. And thanks, Mark. And I'm going to, I'm going to bend this around because I've been thinking a lot about it lately as it comes to healthcare. In the military, I wanted to be a soldier because I wanted to be like my father because he was an infantry soldier and effective. And, but then I also wanted to go in those parts of the military that were talked about with great reverence, the special operating forces and whatnot, because you wanted to walk in the room and, and have people look at you and go, oh, look at those guys. They're, they're brave and bold and all that kind of thing. You didn't say that out loud, but I think that was inside. You wanted to test yourself. Could I do that? And you did a number of things that were frightening. And then once you got over it, it just made you a little bit more confident as you went forward. But over time, I started to think about risk in slightly different ways than I might have before. You know, in one sense, risk can be very short term. It can be running out under enemy fire or doing something that seems particularly daredevilish in your personal life, that sort of thing. And that's a, those are short term risks that can have high costs. But the longer term risks, I think, are when you undermine what you are trying to do or to be overall. And so, for an example, in Afghanistan, I asked soldiers to take more personal risk 
by the way they interacted with the population, not use as much firepower and things like that, because the greater risk was in failing, was in not being able to win the support of the population. And at the end of the day, that's what we were there for. I would say healthcare, the short-term risk is that someone will say, you don't make your numbers, you're not efficient enough. You don't have enough appointments in a day. You don't have what, whatever the metrics of trying to grind out a very efficient business are. But I would argue that the much greater and long-term risk in healthcare is not being what we need healthcare to be, which is to create in our population a, a sense that we will take care of you. You will be a partner in that. You will take care of yourself. And so instead of a transactional healthcare system, where I go to a physician who is going to, you know, bill me in 15 minute increments and, and try to sell me a you know, brain transplant because that's going to make money or whatever. What we really need is a, a different mindset that says we are going to accept some risk because we're going to have a very human system, a very human focused system and a human based system. It's got to be efficient. It's got to be effective, obviously, but there are always going to be attention. There will always be bean counters who will argue that maybe we should do a little less of this when reality for the good of the people that you serve, you got to do more of X. This is where when I watch you lead Intermountain, that your personal leadership style, your personal commitment to the human side, your personal story, what you've gone through is part of that tension. Because I think we could bring auditors in and if they didn't know you were Intermountain, they'd go through the books and they'd come out with one set of recommendations. But then there's patients and people who are family members impacted would probably come out with another. And how do you do that balance and the risk that leaders have to take to create that balance? Because it's easy to be binary. It's easy to say it's black or it's white and just go that way. But when it's complicated or complex, I'd say, then, it, then it's riskier at the leader level. Yes, it, it certainly is. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how you transformed the structure of JSOC and how you took a great organization, but probably great for a different conflict and morphed it, whether there was personal risk for you from a career standpoint, but also how you managed it for the people who served under you and whether you needed different kinds of leaders to serve under you in a different kind of structure. Because um, my system and my industry are trying to go through a transformation and it strikes me that we're trying to do something really different with a old style structure and maybe set of leadership skills. Yeah, I think you're right. And I would have never thought this before, but since we've been interacting, I think that there's more similarity than, than I had ever realized. JSOC was counterterrorist force had been performed on a fee for service basis, <laughs> meaning we were very narrow. We were a force designed to go rescue hostages and we would be given intelligence, given a mission, go rescue hostages and come back solve an airplane hijacking. That was the model. And it was sort of a keep these guys behind glass, break glass in a moment of emergency, launch them, solve it. They come back and short, focused and narrow. And it created inside the organization that same sort of narrow focus, tremendous expertise, tremendous competence at that. 
but a sense that we weren't responsible for anything before or after. We would come in in the moment and then we would fly away and we'd leave a smoking pile of rubble behind us and, and we'd say, okay, our work here is done. In Iraq, it was very different because in Iraq, we had a long-term problem that was large in nature and any specific operation we did was incomplete. It was just part of an overall effort. So what we were trying to do is contribute to reestablishing order and security in Iraq as part of the ability for them to reestablish effective governance. And so we had to do this very broad mission to go after al-Qaeda in Iraq, which was a large growing, almost like a cancer, and it kept growing. And so for leaders, the response that most of them at the beginning had, they said, what do you want me to do, boss? And I'd say, I can't tell you exactly what I want you to do. I want you to solve the problem, figure out what the problem is in your area and solve that. I can't tell you what target to hit. I can't tell you the way to do it. I'm not going to try because I won't be correct. Instead, I'm going to broaden your aperture. I'm going to say you are responsible for the outcome here. And so you can't hide behind just being told I was told to do just this narrow task. You've got to be responsible for understanding the ecosystem and producing an outcome. Stan, let me let me double click on that. We're experiencing something very similar. So as we seek to have really clear strategic objectives and guardrails and function as a unified team, the way we can do that most effectively is to have leaders out in the field who actually make the decision. And it's their responsibility to stay aligned. It's their responsibility to figure out what doors to kick in. in. (laughs) And it's my job to make sure they got the tools and the information to do that. And together we can go really fast. And I'm discovering that some leaders are really up for that. They want to own their leadership. And some leaders are scared to death of it because then they're responsible. Did you find that you had to change people out, people who really wanted to be told what to do by the boss uh, versus those who wanted to figure it out for themselves? We did. We found exactly the same problem. At first, I think most people were nervous about being given a broad mission. They much preferred something narrower because they could do that. That was finite. They knew they could exercise, but produce an outcome is something most of us had not been ever given a mission like that before. So the first thing we did was we did tremendous amount of transparency and constant communication. And what that did was it created normative pressure across the organization to go in that direction. It also gave people confidence because instead of everybody being in their narrow silo and being worried about it, they saw that everybody was struggling with the same problem. And so they felt more confident at trying to to broaden out. Plus, they felt normative pressure to do that. Now, there was a percentage that couldn't or wouldn't. And they have to be moved because it's unfair to the organization to allow them to continue to fail because the rest of the organization assumes you as a leader aren't serious about your guidance if you're unwilling to move the people who can't or won't. But I did find that the transparency helped an awful lot of people who probably would have had to been moved if we hadn't been able to create a different kind of environment. Also, you have to look in the mirror because part of it is us. We can't do the old leadership style where we just write a bunch of tasks out and we send them out 
it's got to be much more interactive because we've got to be constantly communicating the, the changing environment. We've got to be able to change what we ask for. We have to be humble about our ability to define the task effectively, the mission effectively at the beginning, because it'll probably turn out we got it wrong and we got to be able to go back and, and change it. So let me talk about one of the harder things that I'm experiencing with leadership, and I'd love your advice. But at the beginning of the pandemic, I called you and I said, what happens when one of my healthcare workers dies of COVID and what should I do? And your answer was honor them, honor them, honor them. And 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 we we have. But we're also seeing people who are suffering in all kinds of other ways now. Behavioral health problems, suicide, substance abuse. And in many instances, people have gone from being perceived as heroes to actually being vilified by highly politicized people who see their healthcare service in a different light than it's meant to be. Do you have some advice for me in this next phase of our war about how to support our people, which is something that I'm obsessed with and I think other leaders are as well? Yeah, I do. And I would say first, remember we said you have to honor those who fall, but then you have to tell everybody else the mission continues. We have to do the job. We can't step away from our responsibility. You're, the healthcare industry has entered a period where the military goes through every once in a while as well. You remember in Vietnam, toward the end of it, the military was vilified and, and some of it was deserved and much of it was not. And then at the beginning after 9-11, every soldier was a hero. And the idea was, and I think Times Man of the Year was the American soldier. Well, now the, the pendulum has swung quite a lot. You see stories now about the generals lied about this or that, and the soldiers did this or that. The reality's never really changed, but the perception and the, the narrative changes. And that's really hard on the force. Police forces go through this as well. They're the thin blue line of heroes at one point, and then the next week they're, they're out of control thugs or whatever. And it's, it's used by people either for emotional purposes or for political purposes. I think at this point, what you need to do is be the steady leader for the force, remind people about the values that holds them together. What the military did after Vietnam, which was effective, is they came in and they really doubled down on standards, training, and values and things. And they knew it would take a while. And it took almost a decade, to be honest, to, to sort of work their way out of it, to rebuild the professional confidence of the force. And I would say you need to do that. What you don't want to fall prey to is a we-they attitude. There is a temptation, and the military did a little of that after Vietnam, as they said, the press was responsible for our defeat or the public was. And when you do that, you become more insular. And at first it feels good. At the very beginning, it makes everybody feel like we're a tight force because everybody's out to get us, but that's not a healthy environment. That's a lot of the criticism may be valid. That, that's really helpful. And we're trying hard not to be political. We've got a, a mission that is easy to understand. We're here to keep people well. And when they get sick, we're here to make them better. I'd like to ask you sort of as we get close to wrapping up about something I know you care a lot about, and that is doing good in the world. And, you know, when I look at leaders who I admire, 
they take their businesses and their leadership, and in addition to accomplishing their primary mission, they try and make things better around them. And again, this is not political. This is around you know being a good human being. And when I think about the history of the U.S. military, one of the collateral benefits has been one of the very first places where racial integration occurred and a social good that came out of your business. Can you talk a little bit about what you see as leaders' responsibilities above and beyond delivering operational and financial results and what you think our obligations are in terms of social good and improving the lives of people around us? Yeah, Mark, this is a a conversation I think is being had more. And I think it's really important because we went through a period where we sort of narrowed down leader responsibilities to shareholder return, or I will create the best technology and that's my contribution and somebody else is responsible for all those social things. But the reality is the leadership in a society goes across different sectors and it's the same people. It's the people who are very good writers, the very good doctors, the very good military leaders, the very good political leaders. They are people who have accepted leadership responsibility writ large with some of the privileges that go with that. But they've also developed expertise and experience and connections. And so they get responsibility that they may not have originally anticipated. What they say, how they act, What they put on social media matters because it impacts what other people think and what they do. And so I think that we as leaders now have more responsibility than I'd say ever before. We can't say it's the government's problem or it's non-governmental organizations' responsibility to take care of people. We have to step back and say, okay, we live in an environment and that environment is something that we have got to keep clean and orderly. And I mean, go to a campsite and stay for a week. And if you don't have discipline in the way you act, if you don't have norms in the way you conduct yourself, the place will become unlivable in 48 hours and unhealthy in 72. And and sometimes we let our society, we as leaders, let our society do that. I personally think now that I mentioned the word norms, I think we need need to reestablish some norms for ourselves, what we're willing to say and do. And we've got to understand you can't cry fire in a crowded theater and you can't do other similar things. I also think that those responsibilities we take for the well-being of others, for their economic well-being, for their legal rights and all are much broader than we might have wanted to narrowly define them before. And so I think we we need a period when those people lucky enough to be leaders in our society understand that they are also given an immense responsibility to be part of that. And we ought to hold ourselves and each other to that kind of a standard. So let me ask you specifically You know, I love this idea of making good trouble. I I love it. And do you have an example of a time where you made some good trouble? Yeah. I made a lot of bad trouble too. Uh, (laughs) Haven't we all? We've all made our mistakes. Yeah. Sometimes you've got to find something that just isn't right and you got to take it on. There are two that I can remember, but I'll talk about the second. When I was a leader in the Rangers, one of the, the things that was in the Ranger culture, very elite light infantry unit was hazing. 
And hazing was thought to be part of a rite of passage. If you come into the Rangers as a young Ranger, the people just just senior to you, the, the privates first class, the, the corporals, they would haze the privates. And it could get pretty rough and it could get really counterproductive. But then after the privates had survived that, they said, well, it made me stronger. Therefore, I'm going to haze this next generation. It was not a good idea. It wasn't a smart thing. It wasn't a mature thing. It didn't make us a better unit. But it was difficult to stamp out culturally because so many people believed in it. And they believed that the leaders believed in it. You know, they thought that the colonel, which I was at that point, will say he's against it, but in a wink and a nod, he's actually for it because he thinks it's actually a good thing. He just can't publicly say that. I think there are a lot of things in our cultures and society we can be guilty of in that way. And we can be guilty. And I didn't in that case because I'd come to believe that it was stupid. But <laughs> there, yeah. It, By the exactly. way, I say stupid and I'm told I'm not allowed to say that sometimes. So thanks for saying it for me, Stan. But, but you've got, we've got to be able to identify those and have the courage to run against things that the culture of our organization sometimes hold almost sacred. Yeah, here, here. A quick question for you. I, I know you love sport, and I know you're a long, long time exerciser. You love your physical training. Talk for a second about how sport has affected your leadership career or vice versa. Yeah, I'm a great believer in all things, you know, sport, physical. One, team sports, obviously. If, you, if you've been on a team and you're not the best player, but you've had to be focused for the team, maybe set the bench, maybe hold tackling dummies in, in high school football. I think all of us have been through part of that. It makes you understand that it ain't all about you. But I also think the other part of sport, and you're an endurance athlete as well, it forces you to do things that are unpleasant and sometimes inconvenient. And they just, I don't know, you get up some mornings and you don't want to run or you don't want to bike or you get halfway through and you go, boy, this would be easier if I didn't. You almost look at other people who don't and you say, well, why can't I be that? But I think it makes you less likely to quit anything you start less likely to give up, a little more confident. You know, at our house, our motto is relentless forward progress. <laughs> and we make up for lack of talent with, 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 with grittiness. So here's the very last question. So you've had unbelievable successes. You've had pushback. You've seen the best of humanity. You've seen the worst of humanity at times. And you're one of the most optimistic, least cynical people I've ever met. Can you tell our listeners how that's so? And if you have any advice for them, if they want to be main, be optimistic people as well. I think for me, I have been surrounded by a series of relationships that just don't let you be pessimistic. You know, I, I think probably all of us went through this on New Year's Eve. I don't stay up late, but I got a bunch of texts and emails from people just saying, hey, Stan, you know, how you doing? And they relate an old story or something like that. Remember when we did XX? And the reality is, if you have enough of those kinds of people, then you just can't. It's like when you are in a, a sports team or in a military force and you want to quit and somebody junior to you is just marching on and not about to quit. And you go, holy, there's no way I can quit if they're not quitting. And that's sort of optimism. 
if you have enough people who are willing to try, it's an age right now with, with social media and regular media, you can get on and I can get myself pretty depressed pretty quickly. I mean, I can sit in front of something. I can just in 30 minutes, I can say, ah, I just, I've had it. But, but then I talk to somebody or I see somebody and it's not like that. Or I see my granddaughters and they're not like that. And I suddenly realize that we're only that way if we let it be that way. You only lose when you give up. Well, with that, that's a perfect ending, and it's a great way of living our lives. Stan, thanks for your friendship, and thanks for this great conversation. And I look forward to doing lots of work together as we build a set of leaders for the future in healthcare and beyond. Thanks so much. Thanks for all you're doing, Mark, you and your entire team. 